from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Calls for change are reaching no consensus in Washington. It definitely uh, is a definite yes. In my opinion, it is inaccurate to assert this simply reflects how big cattle are marketed. We have highlights from this week's Senate Ag Committee hearing on cattle market manipulation claims. It's a deal. Answer the direct question, we have a deal. The president announcing he and a group of senators struck a bipartisan infrastructure spending plan. The acreage debate takes center stage. As USDA updates its acreage findings on Wednesday, we hit the field. And in John's world, the loss of an old friend. Now for the news, continued calls for change in the cattle markets reached no consensus this week. That's as the issue was vetted on Capitol Hill. This week, the Senate Ag Committee held a hearing looking for answers amid accusations of a lack of transparency and anti-competitive practices in the cattle industry. Now, the committee inviting a rancher, a leader with the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, as well as economists and researchers to testify. No representatives from the meatpacking industry took part. Now, among those calling for the hearing, Republican Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa. He's proposed legislation that would have 50% of the daily kill come from the spot market. Right now, he says that figure averages less than 20%. Does captive supply create more leverage for packers to pay lower prices for fed cattle in the cash market? And how does the lack of cash trade ultimately impact livestock auction markets? Thank you, Senator Grassley. And it definitely uh, is a definite yes. It impacts it hugely. When the big four can have uh, all of that captive supply so they do not have to go out and compete for those cattle, then they can push down the prices. In my opinion, it is inaccurate to assert this simply reflects how fed cattle are marketed. Rather, in my opinion, core differences in supply and demand reflect these market changes. I encourage the industry to proceed forward in a manner that does not deteriorate economic benefits of the industry's evolution to improve beef quality and align effort with beef demand signals. The North American Meat Institute, which represents meat companies, is saying it would be submitting detailed written testimony to lawmakers that proves market fundamentals drive the cattle and beef markets. But USDA also addressing the issue on its own. The department announcing this week $55.2 million in grants to help increase smaller packing plant capacity and expand meat and poultry inspections. The money is through the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, and applications are open through August 2nd. Well, it's a deal. The president announcing an agreement on an infrastructure spending plan. The bipartisan agreement is on a $953 billion plan coming from the White House. The president invited members of the bipartisan group to the White House to discuss the plan and the pared down plan is a result. But analysts say it brought more broad backing and could open the door to the president's more sweeping and more expensive proposals. No one got everything they wanted in this package. We all gave some to get some because what we did was put first the needs of our country. This does represent a historic investment in our country's, country's infrastructure, and it meets the needs of folks who live from Virginia out to Arizona. It invests in green energy and climate, recognizing the changing nature of our country and our future. It invests in broadband and our power grid and our structures. And we are delighted to go back to the Hill and begin earning more support from both Republicans and Democrats to get this bill across the finish line. 
Corn, soybean, and soybean oil futures fell Friday on news of a Supreme Court ruling on the RFS. The court ruled in favor of small refineries requesting waiver extensions from biofuel blending mandates, with the court saying the issue was over the word extension with no definition of the term in the current statute. The ruling overturned a 2020 appellate court decision that struck down three small refinery exemptions that were granted by the Trump administration. The Renewable Fuels Association saying it is extremely disappointed in the decision. Others say it also puts the SRE situation in disarray, possibly opening up the door for more requests from refiners. Well, rains this week are growing hope. That's as one meteorologist says Midwest drought conditions may have finally peaked. The latest drought monitor showing some improvement in Indiana and Illinois, but despite getting some moisture, severe drought worsened across parts of northern Iowa, southern Minnesota, as well as northwest Minnesota. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says the situation could soon be changing for the majority of the Midwest. Looking at the latest U.S. drought monitor dated June 22nd, we saw Midwestern drought coverage just over one third, about 36 percent of the Midwest covered by drought on June 22nd. That's likely to be the peak for the summer, I believe, because moving forward from here, we're going to chip away at some of those dry areas, Iowa, Wisconsin, and uh, that's really kind of the key area where we're going to see drought ending very abruptly here in late June and early July. Now, as for northwest Iowa, the northern plains, as well as the entire west, Rippy is less optimistic. He expects drought conditions to worsen and the high heat to continue. And he says the difference between the have and the have nots when it comes to moisture, well, it will become even more stark throughout the month of July. That's it for the news. Well, up next, a change in the forecast, and it could be much wetter for some areas of the Midwest. We'll get details from Mike Hoffman next. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, it looks like the forecast is turning wetter, much wetter for some areas of the Midwest. I mean, just how much moisture are we talking? Good morning to you, Tyne. Yes, some areas have already been getting deluges of rain uh, as it uh, has uh, been showing up over the past couple of days. The system's still slowly moving east. We're going to show that to you, and that means there will still be some areas getting heavier rainfall. It's on the wet side, root zone. This has been the case for months now. Arkansas, it has spread eastward into parts of Alabama, Mississippi, down into Louisiana. Dry in much of the northeast on the root zone. It's kind of uh, back and forth in the Great Lakes where you've had some rain, and you've definitely had some rain over the past couple of days, and then dry from the northern uh, plain states all the way through the west. Drought monitor then has improved in places, the Carolinas, little bit southern Michigan, back into northern Illinois. It's gotten worse just north of there, though, although you've had rain the past couple of days, so this should improve next week. And it's improved in parts of eastern Montana down into a western South Dakota, but there's still places with extreme to exceptional droughts over north and South Dakota. And then the southwest quadrant of the country just continues to be extremely dry. So here's the jet stream. We have this trough over the middle of the country. It's been picking up the Gulf moisture. That's why all the rain over the past couple of days from the Great Lakes back into uh, parts of uh, the Missouri Valley, Miss Central Mississippi Valley, huge high pressure over the Northwest, uh, very hot air associated with that. Not a lot of changes as we head through the middle of this week. Still the trough, although it's weakening over the Great Lakes back into the Central Plains, still the big ridge over the West. As we head through time, though, the models are starting to kind of uh, bring in some cooler, drier air to the Great Lakes, first of all. 
and another shot looks like into the northern plains as we head through this holiday weekend. Still hot though in the western parts of the country. So here you go on Monday. The heat, you're going to see that every day uh, as we head through this week. Monday, showers and storms from the northeast through the lower Great Lakes all the way down into the lower Mississippi River Valley. These will be hit and miss away from the front, but along this front there will be waves of heavier thunderstorms. And you'll notice the front doesn't move a whole lot by Wednesday. just shifts a little bit southeastward. Waves still moving along that, so that's where the heavier thunderstorms will be. And then finally, we start to see it shifting a little farther south as the drier air moves into much of the Great Lakes and the northern and central plains by Friday. But uh, heavy rain still possible with this system over the mid-Atlantic. The heat continues out west. July temperatures above normal northeast, most of the west. Below normal southern Mississippi Valley, August temperatures above normal northeast. And then you can see from the Dakotas through the west above normal, below normal still in the far southern portions. I'm just going to go near normal then for the eastern half of the country in September, above normal in the west. Precipitation over the next 90 days above normal from the Gulf Coast through most of the Atlantic states and below normal from Minnesota back toward Washington. Tyne. Well, weather is a wild card for the markets, but it's also USDA's upcoming acreage report. Mark Gold and Chip Nellinger talk about both next. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Chip Nellinger, Mark Gold joining us. Mark, a lot of price action this week in the markets. Still a lot of volatility. Was weather the headline once again? Well, certainly the weather has been the big play out here. We've got uh, rains moving in. Uh, they've been talking about two to four inches. We opened the corn on uh, Thursday and we moved 20 some odd cents lower. Took out the 100 day moving average. And then right now we've rallied as much as 25 cents off those lows. So the volatility continues. I'm guessing somebody took some of the rain out of the forecast, but there's other forecasts that show a lot more out here. But it's a combination of really two things right now, the rain and the acreage report on Wednesday. Yeah, and Chip, I mean, we heard in the news from USDA's meteorologists that if these rain forecasts do materialize and this wetter weather pattern indeed does come in, between now and the 4th of July, we could see 5 to 10 inches of rain. And he thinks that the drought in the Midwest may have peaked. If that is the case, what do you think happens with prices now as we head into this key July time frame? Well, it may have peaked. Uh, that that might be true. But there's still large areas of the far northwest Corn Belt in the Dakotas. Minnesota, parts of northern Iowa, parts of Nebraska uh, that are critically dry. And if they don't receive needed rainfall here within the next couple of weeks, you're probably, uh, if you haven't already done irreversible yield damage and taken the top end off of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's good to see better rains here. Maybe the drought uh, is over for the bulk of the Corn Belt, but there's still uh, multiple millions of acres that are in peril here and need some rain and, and it's not really in the forecast. In fact, uh, that forecast uh, extended out into the first half of July. It looks like the heat comes back and it keeps that far Northwest corridor, um, you know, pretty dry. So that is definitely a, a big yield determinant, even if parts of Iowa and the Eastern Corn Belt continue to receive good rainfall. I'm not sure that we're capable of trend line yields in corn right now. Yeah, and USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey did say that, that, the, the, that you know, the, the northern plains, northwest Iowa, that area, the drought could become more dire and that line of the haves and the have-nots could become more clear. But, you know, I know trade is focused on weather, Mark, 
But are we pricing in expectations for next week's acreage report? And if so, what, what are those expectations? Well, some of the expectations are for five or six million acres more corn. I don't, I personally don't see that. I think I've been saying all along, I think it's going to be somewhere around two to three million more acres of corn, a million and a half more acres of beans. The question becomes, do these increased acres offset the poor yields that we're going to see in a lot of the country, particularly North Dakota, like we said, parts of uh, Nebraska, and certainly the Northwest is in trouble. Not that we grow a lot of corn in uh, Oregon or Washington State, but look at the Oregon ratings on wheat. They're the worst we've ever seen. So do, can we offset the poor, potentially poor yields in some states with more acres and potentially huge acres, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, it's, it's possible out there. So there's still a lot of balls in the air that are still being juggled. Yeah, Chip Nellinger, um, FBN last time in the March planting intentions report, their survey results prior to that report were pretty spot on for soybeans. And this round, they say their survey shows that farmers planted 92.9 million acres of corn uh, up from the 91.1 in March. And then soybeans, they say their survey results show soybean acres falling from 87.6 million in March to 86.5 million now. If that holds true, how would that set the stage for the next month or two? Well, it'd be wildly bullish if that were true. I, I probably in Mark's camp as well. I think it could easily come in 2 million acres uh, additional or less and maybe just a million or touch more uh, in beans. I don't know where all the acres are going to come from when you add up all the uh, you know total uh, major crop uh, areas that the USDA told us at the end of March. I don't know where all these acres are going to come from. So I think the market got way ahead of itself at the, uh, you know, maybe urging of some private estimates out here that were extreme. Some of them were five, six million more acres of corn. The I states don't swing it. So if you do see a big increase, it's going to be from the Dakotas. They're already burning up. So I can't get behind, um, you know, the fact that this uh, acreage standpoint is going to be wildly bearish. But, you know, it's a very volatile report to try to predict. And the USDA's fooled us in years past. Well, we'll be watching those results next week on U.S. Farm Report. But after that acreage report, will the trades focus then turn back to weather when that weather market kind of happened early this year, as we talked about last weekend? So we'll talk to Mark Gold as well as Chip Nellinger about that later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, Illinois farmers saw some rain this week. They were also greeted with some wild weather and that weather also doing some damage in John's world. A couple of weekends ago, we had a thunderstorm line pass through and a narrow band of our county saw some high winds and very heavy rain. The gossip in Christman locally was that there was an 80 mile an hour gust at the peak of the storm. At that time, we did hear a loud noise, but that turned out to be mostly a patio table flying through our screened in porch. But it was also the demise of this enormous tree. Whatever the speed, it was just a little bit more than the tree could withstand. This tree was here when we cleared off an old house in 1978 to build the home we have now. At the time, I remember it was just an unidentified scrub tree and a fence line. It had probably been cut off once, uh, but at least once. But like other trees we consider nuisances, it grew three new shoots, which slowly combined to make one enormous trunk. 
We called it the mystery tree for years because we didn't bother to look up and research its species. Jan later decided it was a mulberry of some kind. Meanwhile, while this is going on, several silver maples, soft maples, have come and gone. Whatever the details, this tree has grown relentlessly with enormous branches, some of them almost parallel at the ground, which I remember caused me often to mutter about having to trim those low hangers when mowing underneath it. Not that there was any grass underneath there, mind you, its shade was nearly total. It also threatened nearby smaller trees we had planted with its expansion. In the fall, as you see here, it was one of the last trees to turn colors and drop leaves. And the best it could do was kind of a yellowish, greenish, brown layer of dead foliage underneath about a foot and a half thick. Often those leaves would drop almost simultaneously overnight. But faced with the loss of this seemingly permanent fixture in our western skyline, we have realized we have lost an old friend, far more than a meaningless mountain of vegetation. Both of us have been surprised at our emotions of mourning, which is exactly the feeling we are processing. Now the funeral process per se will take some time and it, it's the kind of cleanup that it's hard to take much pleasure in doing. It was not a particularly pretty tree, but it was persistently enduring through storm and drought and gave us shelter and shade for decades. There is a saying that you can't make old friends. Remember, you can't plant old trees either. Thanks, John. All right, when we come back, Machine Repeat, he has Tractor Tales this week. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're off to Western Pennsylvania to meet a collector who shares with us the first tractor he bought as a teenager, a 1937 Farmall F30. Oh, there's the keys right here. <laughs> this is a 1937 Farmall F30. With the year I was born, a guy up the road about a half mile bought this tractor and it ran, he used it a little bit, and he parked it. <laughs> I think he said the manifold went bad, he put a new manifold on, never started it again. So it sat for a long time, and I wasn't even driving at the time. He came down here, picked me up to help him move it up out of the woods, and we drug it out, and I saw crap flying out of the spark plug hole, so he had the spark plugs out. So I told him, I said, I, I'd like to buy that tractor. I want this tractor. And he wanted $2,500, I about fell over, you know. I didn't know what they were worth, I didn't know anything, so I talked to a guy that I deal with and he said probably 500 bucks the shape it was in. Well, me and this guy went back and forth and back and forth. Ten years later, he was getting ready to scrap it and I finally said, Butch, just sell me the tractor. So I got it and each cylinder had its own mouse nest, it was locked up, I had to pound it loose. It's been to quite a few shows and when I first got it done, it was the only F30. Anywhere I took it, it was the only F30 and now over the years, Quite a few more showing up. I had it running in a year and it took me another year to get it painted. So in that year that it wasn't painted I plowed and dissed with it once or twice. After it was painted I raked with it. When I first got it running I took it out to the fair and I pulled it once. 
And I think I pulled it twice after it was painted. But then I decided just to kind of give her a little break. I don't want to hurt her. <laughs> Those F30s, you, you can't find parts for these. They're not readily available. F30s aren't the easiest thing to find, especially in this part of the world. They're not the easiest tractor to find. Well, there's always a lot of anticipation leading into the June acreage report, which comes out next week. So up next, we hit the fields to see just how much acreage decisions have changed. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, the last acreage report was released in March, and that's when USDA reported results of what farmers intended to plant. But now that the calendar says June, how much have those plans changed since March? That's the acreage debate as we hit the fields for this week's Farm Journal report. As USDA prepares to post its June 30th planted acreage report. There's almost always a big surprise in these reports. The trade is watching to see just what those numbers will be. The assumption is that we'll see much larger corn acreage and also larger soybean acreage versus March intentions. According to USDA's planting intentions report, which surveyed farmers in mid-March, U.S. farmers intended to increase corn acres by less than 1%. Soybeans were up 5% from last year, and the wheat responses showed all wheat acres up 5%. But cotton farmers intended they would plant slightly fewer cotton acres overall. But as of June... So we've still got surface residue on here. Most planting plans are now in the ground. The weather, uh, and for that matter, the markets, didn't necessarily impact that to a tremendous amount. Michigan farmer Tim Boring says his planting decisions did not change from March until now. We really had uh, acreage decisions nailed down here before we went to the field, that, that March time frame. And a dry spring aided planting progress on his farm. If anything, that we've been able to get crops planted a little bit more timely. We've worried about them more once they've been in the ground and, and making sure they're up and going. In Iowa. Our subsoil is really short. Dryness is also a concern. It was a dry summer last year. And we had a good crop, but we used all our subsoil moisture. We got recharged a little bit this winter, but we're really dry. But the dryness didn't drive any changes in his planting plants. As far as acreage, they didn't change because that's what our rotation is. No change in acreage decisions from March until now is also a story echoed further east by Tim Kowser, who farms in Nevada, Iowa. This year, the decision on the corn bean split was pretty simple. Last year we were in the middle of the derecho, and so everything that was corn last year, for the most part, went to soybeans. Kowser says with concerns about volunteer corn from the derecho damage, his switch to more soybeans was decided this winter. You know, overall the markets stayed pretty much relative to each other, so there was no drastic decision to switch from one crop to the other. But in the Texas panhandle. I think Milo was the big winner. Uh, as far as prices go, it bought the crop, so I think that's what we're seeing. Planting decisions did differ. I'd say we increased it about 30%, but last year we had we had more than normal as well. So Sedgay says the main driver of that is basis. Early when we were making our planting decisions, it was probably, I don't know, 30, 40% higher than corn in our area. So so it's it's a less risk in Milo kind of a no-brainer to plant a little more. For this Texas farmer, the surge in sorghum acres could be the headline next week. 
that's going to be the big surprise coming into the, the report is an decrease in cotton acres. Uh, you just drive around and you don't see much cotton. And he's not alone. An agronomist in southwest Kansas says soar gum sales were up 190% this year. With USDA's March report already showing farmers intended to plant the most sorghum acres since 2015. And in southern states like Mississippi, some farmers switched to soybeans over cotton this year as well. I know my granddad had several cotton acres he was looking to put in and they ended up being you know wet and so their soybeans or you know market marketing decisions of course this year factored more than the weather. Gentry Clark says his acres are planted heavily in soybeans but his planting decisions aren't over yet. On the 9th of June it started raining and fortunately uh, just to our north they got about a total of 15 to 18 inches of rain in four days. He says his farm saw 10 inches of rain during that storm, but as the nearby river rose, several of his fields were under two to three feet of water for two weeks. So we've got a third of the crop total went under for me personally. Soybeans and cotton acres were hurt the most as farmers are still sourcing seed to replant in his area. Well, you know what didn't go under looks really good still. We've got several acres we were able to put a relift pump in and save. And then other than that, we've got fields where there's nothing and we've got fields where they're looking really sickly. And uh, I guess right now that's the thing is we're playing a waiting game trying to see just how much we'll have to replant. We know it'll be some, but we can't put our finger on exact acres yet. And as farmers in central and eastern Iowa welcome the rain. We are definitely uh, living for an inch of rain every week. And if we don't get that, then we're going to take a little yield off the top every week we go without. Farmers in western Iowa say recent rains haven't been enough to cure their drought. So now we've got a little bit of a reprieve, but we're still going to need more rain because there just isn't enough subsoil moisture to get us through to pollination and then to a crop. Well, from one USDA report to another, pork prices did see pressure this week. But on Thursday, USDA released its quarterly hogs and pigs report. And according to one economist, those numbers showed that hog prices could see some support to close out the year. Earlier this week, the cutout value for pork hit a new record loss. You can see by the numbers, the cutout dropping almost $13 on Tuesday. The primal belly down more than $59 and primal rib dropping more than $18. But on the supply side, Thursday's USDA hogs and pigs report showed all pigs and hogs inventory down 2% from last year, but up a percent from the March report. But the report did show a smaller pig crop and lighter pigs per litter, something one pork economist thinks is attributed to more animal disease outbreaks than realized. If you look at the monthly numbers behind that, it's really the... Um, it's really the the March number that, that pulled it down. It was 10.66. The others were well over 11 and growing. Uh, but uh, still, that says that the March, May quarter, the pig crop down uh, over 3%. That's September through December slaughter. I think that should be supported for the fourth quarter prices. Meyer points out the report also eases pork processing concerns. With fewer hogs in the fourth quarter, he says it could relieve some of the pressure caused by slower line speeds at packing plants. All right, well, we'll talk more about livestock markets, but also hit on weather and the grain markets even more. We'll do that when we come back with Mark Goldman, Chip Nellinger. Back now with Mark Golden, Chip Nellinger. Mark, you know, we talked about the weather market that's really had a hold on 
traders and everyone watching since June. It kind of started a little bit earlier this year. So in July, do you think we will have our typical weather market as well? Well, in the almost 50 years I've been in the business now, we, we look at this July 4th weekend as a major swing area. And if we come in after the report and after the three-day holiday, Monday night, if we're 20 or 30 higher, the market is assuming that there's going to be pretty bad weather in July and pollination, which we think is going to peak between the 10th and the 20th, could be in danger even in the I states. So even though we're going to get all these rains right now, and it's going to certainly help where it's going to fall, uh, it doesn't mean that these crops are made by any stretch of the imagination. And again, if we come out lower on that Monday night and close lower on Tuesday, it's an indication that the drought may be over and that we've got more corn than the trade expects. Yeah, so if those forecasts do show drier conditions and there is concern about production, since chip with prices, you know, we have fallen back so much, how hard is it going to be to make higher highs? Is it going to be hard to get back to those price levels that we saw just three weeks ago? Yeah, I think you've done some psychological damage for sure, some technical damage on the on the bean chart, but it's a weather market and you can throw that out the window. To Mark's point, uh, we got a long way to go and a little bit of rain here in June for some areas is helpful and beneficial, but we've got pollination to get through. And we saw what happened last year with a dry August and a hot August, you really took the top end off of uh, yields at grain fill time for corn. So the, the jury is far from being uh, out yet on uh, you know the final result of this uh, of this crop. So I, I think we're still in a full-fledged weather market. I think it would be hard to uh, initially get back, but these funds have a massive amount of capacity. They've liquidated some of their length here in the last week or two. They'll be right back in on the long side if there's a reason come July, because then it really matters. And if you don't have meaningful rainfall for the far Northwestern Corn Belt, uh, they're going backwards in a big hurry. They don't have time on their side and they haven't got some of these rains that other areas have received. And so if you don't have meaningful rain in the Dakotas and Minnesota and Nebraska by 10th, 12th of July, they're going backwards in yields and we'll be right back into a full-fledged weather market again. Well, you know, it's not just row crop farmers watching these prices right now. I mean, Mark, when you think about these feed users, there's a lot of uncertainty about the volatility that we're seeing, you know, what, what is going to happen with feed prices. So as we've seen corn and beans and, and, and we kind of retreat a little bit, has that had any impact on, on the cattle market? Well, the cattle market's really been a function of the slaughter. Uh, the box beef prices, you know, they were absolutely sky high. Uh, they can't get enough capacity slaughtered. They can't get enough workers in, whether it's COVID or wages, we really don't know. Uh, but now the box beef is broken. The cash prices, we saw some 125, 126s, which is the first time we've seen those kind of prices in the in the cash market in a while. So as the corns come down, it's helped the feeder market. And I think the box beef coming down has helped the fat cattle market. In fact, you know, if we can slaughter, get the slaughter up another five or ten thousand head. Uh, it's going to make a big difference in these markets, in my opinion. But we've got cattle on feed on Friday, wide ranges. So it's really anybody's guess. But certainly the corn market will have an impact on the livestock. 
Chip, we had the Hogs and Pigs report this week, but prior to that, we did see some pressure when it came to pork cutout values uh, and, and things. Do you think that is a trend that continues uh, through these summer months? Well, I think it depends on this uh, hogs and pigs, right? I, I still think you're going to be under the effect of some liquidation. Uh, I'm not sure that, um, you know, we're going to go straight down from here. I think there's still uh, some good demand out there. I think that uh, you're going to have some sort of a retracement back to the highs, whether that's 38 to 50 percent. I think that there is one more rally coming. But, uh, you know, I think this is a warning shot across the bow here from the hog producers tremendous uh, opportunities out here in the deferreds, some levels we haven't seen for many, many years. And I think uh, we need to take this sell-off as a, a real warning sign that maybe the bull trend is uh, close to being over. Uh, but I think there's better things coming than what we're at uh, currently. Well, wheat harvest, it is progressing, but slowly. We have to take a break, but when we come back, we will head to the fields of Oklahoma to check out wheat harvest right now. Well, wheat harvest is rolling across portions of the U.S. right now. Amber waves of grain, the hustle of harvest. It really is an iconic sight. And this week, Oklahoma State University's Sunup program gives us a glimpse of wheat harvest in Oklahoma. It's a hot, humid Oklahoma day, but Brian Vale is finally harvesting his wheat crop. We're probably a good week, week and a half later than we normally start because of the weather, the rains. That's on top of the conditions during the growing season. Yeah, it's been a pretty extreme year as far as the weather. That cold spell we had in February, I, that, I think that really hurt the wheat a little bit. And then, of course, the late freeze in April. It's been probably two or three in the afternoon before we can get started real good. It's kind of spotty here and there, but it's overall, it's pretty good. Despite the weather, it hasn't dampened the Vale family spirits. It's good quality what we're getting. It's good heavy, heavy 64 pound wheat, 65. The moisture's just really getting dry enough to take it to town. We're just gonna have to get used to those, I guess. It seems like it's happening more often than not. And it, it's definitely got some freeze damage this year. Across Oklahoma, many producers like Brian have had to deal with a delayed harvest. But with combines now rolling across the plains, things are beginning to heat up. Yeah, everybody kind of gets fired up for wheat harvest. It's just kind of a tradition, you know. We don't get as excited about cutting milo or soybeans or whatever else we're harvesting. Wheat harvest is just kind of a big deal. In the Vale family has been harvesting wheat for a long time. My dad, my granddad, my great granddad started farming in this area. So I'm like a fourth generation farmer. But for exactly how long is up for debate. I guess you might say there's six generations of us. I'm pretty fortunate I got two sons helping me. One's on that combine, another one's running a grain cart. Got a nephew that's driving trucks for us. My dad helps when we get behind. So yeah, it's a pretty family involved deal. Whenever I was just a little boy, they had an old drag combine that they pulled with a tractor and uh, they drug it out of the weeds about harvest time and hooked her up and you run the you run the header with a big old lever, you know, and it's changed so much, I don't hardly get in them anymore, I know that. The life of a farmer is defined by change. Whether it's the change of the seasons, the climate, or the crops, the only thing that's consistent is change. I started no-tilling my stuff about 20 years ago, and so then we started rotating crops, growing more summer crops, more diverse cropping systems, you know, and that kind of, was it enabled me to clean up my fields and have cleaner wheat fields. You know, I'd, I'd like to see it go on, keep it going, that's for sure. And uh, it looks like we're gonna have some 
grandsons that's interested maybe in farming and kind of keeping things going. So I think it'll go for several years. Until then, Brian and his family will keep farming wheat and continue to challenge the elements. Well, it's just part of it and you just, depending on mother nature to do her part and cut you some slack, you're always at her mercy. We usually bump, bump our way through it and if this crop, you know, if a wheat crop fails, we go in here and plant a summer crop right behind it. Just no-till it in and hope, hope it works. Usually something will work. <laughs> in Cattle County, I'm Ed Barron. Thanks to Oklahoma State's SUNUP program. Well, wheat harvest progress, it is actually a slow go in some areas this year. The latest crop progress report from USDA shows while Oklahoma farmers are only a couple points behind average, nationwide, 17% of the crop had been harvested. That was as of Sunday, and that's nine percentage points behind the five-year average. All right, up next, transitioning from one generation to the next. Well, as tax change proposals are up for debate, it's also servicing another issue, legacy planning. Here's John Phipps. From A Voice in Indiana. On the May 1 program, you spoke about retiring. I was wondering if you could share more about your transition into retirement, especially for those who struggle with this on the farm. My father started his easing into retirement four to five years ago, and he will be completely retired in 2022. Yes, he will still help on the farm when he can. However, I have a friend and his father has decided he won't retire, but instead will work, I guess, until he can't. I think that is a poor planning for the family farm and for the family as a whole. Are you or others able to assist in explaining the importance of making a retirement plan? Maybe you can share more from your own experiences. Okay, this is a tricky one. The two questions I get most from younger farmers are one, how do I get into farming? Two, how do I get dad out? They are not unrelated as many if not most sole operator farms struggle to essentially double the family expenses. I am not an expert on transition planning or family relationships, but this week and next, I will try to balance our family privacy without dodging these tricky questions. These are my experiences, and the, using these ideas at home may yield variable results. First, remember that the biggest problem is usually economics, simply put, money. Many of us have struggled to grow a farm to sufficient size for one family, and adding another may or may simply be mathematically impossible. But the hidden problem is the attitudes about wealth that change with aging. At a certain point, regardless of the actual financial situation, it dawns on us we don't have decades ahead in the future to solve any problems we create. Now, add in the jolts that we experience in, in our hearts when friends our age have serious health problems or lose rented ground unexpectedly or any number of other financial reversals and what emerges is a simmering sense of fear we don't have enough for our future. Farmers gradually turn more financially cautious as a result sometimes obsessed with extracting as much wealth as fast as possible from the farm. This happens even as their love and concern for their children remain steadfast. It is a confusing time for elders. Next week, I'll try to remember what I thought back in the day as the oncoming generation and why merging my view of the future and my father's required so much emotional 
and mental effort. Thanks, John, and he'll continue that conversation next week. All right, John showed us earlier some of the damage caused by Illinois storms this week. Well, Iowa farmers, they did not escape it either. We'll show you areas hit with hail next. Join Andrew McCrae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. Well, more warnings about severe weather this weekend, but as we showed you in weather, some areas are in need of rain. They saw some relief, but that rain also brought damage as Iowa was hit with hail. Check out this video from Twitter. Hail so deep, it almost looked like snow. The National Weather Service says half dollar size hail fell in Lynn County in Iowa. And I actually spoke to a seed dealer in that area who said the damage was a mile wide but 30 miles long. He said several fields were totaled with farmers already trying to get to the fields to replant when things dry out and Mother Nature cooperates. Thank you so much for watching and be sure to tune in next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.